Good morning, church. My name is Andy Johnson, and as Wes mentioned, I am part of the A-team. Uh, Buddy is not with us today. He's gone up to, to preach up in Tuscaloosa. Um, today, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be wrapping up the sermon series that we've been working our way through on the seven deadly sins. Now, Buddy joked last week about how, as he, as he launched into his sermon, that there are not, in fact, eight deadly sins. That his sermon on instrumental music was not getting lumped in with the seven deadly sins. If it were, we would have named it eight. But it's seven. And so this week, as I launch into this, I want you to know we were going to have to talk about anger, whether Buddy preached on instrumental music or not. But I am going to leave it to you to decide whether or not it's a coincidence that Buddy preaches the sermon that he did, then sends in a reliever while he flees the scene, <laughs> and then comes back after we've grappled with anger. I'm going to, I trust your wisdom. I trust that the Spirit will reveal to you what's really going on in all of that. Now, in all seriousness, last week was really a great week. We, we were able to have a conversation that for many of us is a challenging conversation uh, in a healthy way as a church family. And the body of Christ ought to be a place where we can talk about hard things. Uh, our hope is that this church is going to continue to be the kind of place where we can continue to have hard conversations, all of them happening in an atmosphere of truth, always truth, but truth spoken in love. Now, as I mentioned, today what we're going to be doing, we're going to be wrapping up our study of what are traditionally called the seven deadly sins. And as Buddy's referenced a couple of times, on on the surface, these don't look all that deadly. A number of them really don't seem all that bad until you get to know them a little bit better and you begin to, to really explore what's happening in all of these and you can begin to understand how our enemy takes these sins and tempts us to sin. Now, anger is a good example of one of these sins that begins from a good thing that God has given his people. Uh, A number of the sins are this way. For instance, sexual desire is a good and a holy thing. It is a gift from God within the boundaries that God has established right up until that moment when the enemy takes it and twists it into the sin of lust. Or God has given us many good and wonderful things to enjoy on this earth, and we are intended to enjoy them right up until that moment where the enemy twists it into the sin to be tempted toward gluttony. Anger is one of those as well. Anger is a passion that has been given to us by God that I believe is actually part of his remedy for one of the other sins, sloth. A couple of weeks ago, Buddy spoke about this this lack of caring, this lack of feeling that is so indicative of the sin of sloth. Well, it's combated when we allow ourselves to become impassioned, when we allow ourselves to become impassioned about the right things. Because anger, when improperly indulged in, does become sin. And so we're left with this really interesting paradox this morning. This morning, we're here to talk about what we call a deadly sin that our God and Jesus indulged in on a regular basis and still do. And so one of the things that we're going to be grappling with this morning is how do we tell the difference? How do we reconcile this, that there is such a thing as godly anger, and then there is anger that is a sin? How do we discern the difference? How do we tell when we're crossing that line? It's going to be one of the things we dive into today. But before we go much deeper, I want to stop and invite in an intentional way the Holy Spirit into this conversation. So let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have created us as passionate people, that you have intended us to feel things. We give you thanks that, as in all of the other virtues, you have modeled for us what godly anger looks like. Father, we pray that this morning we would be able to discern what you're trying to tell us about anger. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak, that it would not be silent. Father, if there's anything that I've prepared that is not of you, that is not truth, 
And I pray that your spirit would block me from speaking those words. And I do pray that your family who has gathered here this morning would have ears to hear exactly what it is that your spirit wants them to hear this morning about anger. It's in the Christ that I pray these things. Amen. Well, we're going to start where I think all good sermons ought to start. We're going to start in Scripture this morning. We're going to consider both God's anger and Jesus' anger in the light of Scripture before we begin to to consider our own anger reflecting off of, of what we see there. So there are four things that I want you to hear about anger out of Scripture as we, as we jump into the sermon this morning. Number one, you need to hear that our God gets angry. It is impossible to read Scripture without coming away with the fact that our God, full of love and compassion that He is, gets angry. Depending upon how you count them, there are over 40 references to the wrath of God, to the anger of God scattered throughout the Old Testament. And I want us to just take a couple of look at these, a, a, a quick look at a couple of these this morning. First of all, there's that time when God decided to call Moses. Now, we've all heard about this story. This is the burning bush. Uh, Moses has been in the wilderness. God has prepared him to be sent back to Egypt to pull his people out of slavery. And he comes to Moses and he tries to call him. And Moses is a little less convinced that he's the right guy than God is. And he makes up all of these excuses. And God counters every one of them until finally in Exodus 4 we're told that God's anger burned against Moses. Now remember what he's standing in front of. He's standing in front of a burning bush. And so this anger of God that begins to burn against him would be a pretty intimidating thing. And you'll notice that right after God's anger burns against him, Moses gets up and does what God told him to do in the first place. So God's anger burned against Moses. We can skip forward to the time of the kings. Uh, Let's consider Psalm chapter 7. Psalm 7 is a song that is written by King David. And we were told that David is a man after God's own heart. So he's someone who, who understands God as much as a person can. He has the same heart as he. And David begins Psalm 7 with this line, O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Which is a beautiful sentiment that we can jump right into. But it then goes on to implore God to rise up in his anger. And David eventually declares in verse 11 that God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. Number two, you need to understand from Scripture, Jesus gets angry. You need to hear that this morning. Now, we actually only find the word anger applied to Jesus in one instance, as far as I can tell. That's in Mark chapter 3. In Mark 3, Jesus has come into the synagogue, a Jewish place of worship, on a Sabbath day, the day of rest that God set apart. And in that synagogue, there are leaders of the Jewish people, and there's a man with a crippled hand. The leaders are watching Jesus, not to see how wonderful it is when the man gets healed, but to try to trap him when he's doing work on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus sees this, and he asks them a question. He asks them, is it better to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And in their effort to dodge the question, they just stay silent. Mark tells us that Jesus became angry with them, and that Jesus was grieved in his heart at their hardness of heart. And Jesus responds in his anger by healing the man with the crippled hand, which eventually leads two sets of Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, guys that normally never got along together, leads them to unite to eventually try to kill him. But that's one story. Probably where most of your minds went when I mentioned to you that Jesus gets angry, you went to the cleansing of the temple. Uh, This is, remember, in the events of Holy Week, one of the themes that we see is that Jesus is in charge of this. And one of the first events of Holy Week is Jesus showing his anger. Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles in the temple, and he finds people basically running a marketplace to take advantage of worshipers who've come from a long way off to worship. Jesus comes in, he turns over the tables and the chairs, and he chases the merchants out, and he rebukes them for turning his house of prayer into a den of robbers. Jesus gets angry. But 
you know as well as I do that this is an extremely one-sided, skipping the rock across the pond of biblical history. You know that that I'm trying to make a point in this, and hopefully it's a point that makes you a little uncomfortable. We ought to be a little uncomfortable that our God and, and and the Son of God get angry. But on the other hand, we ought to be relieved. Given the passions that he's created us with, we ought to also be relieved about that fact that he understands us and that he's created us to be this way. The truth is that while God does have a holy anger that is kindled at times, he's far more often praised for being slow to anger and abounding in love. That's a refrain that gets echoed over and over throughout Scripture. We've already read one psalm to you, referenced it, Psalm 7. Here from Psalm 103. I want to read you just the middle verses of Psalm 103. It, it paints a, a beautiful, very nuanced, multifaceted portrait of our God. So hear what, hear what gets said about him here. Remember, this is the same guy who wrote what we read earlier. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love. He will not always rebuke, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows us. He remembers that we're dust. We see in this, in this little section out of Psalm 103 that our God is not quick to anger, nor does he stay angry long, nor does he give us what we deserve. Rather, he gives us less than our sins deserve. In other words, when God becomes angry with his children, God underreacts. In his anger, God underreacts. And then what can we say about Jesus? Of course, much of Jesus' life, and particularly the, the story of his death and resurrection, is all about him turning the other cheek. Remember, he's the guy who gave us that phrase in the first place. But as Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11, he says that he is gentle and he is humble in heart. Jesus tells us that he is a place to find rest for our souls. And so here at the beginning, we've established that even though God is love and Jesus is gentle and humble in heart, they both get angry. But at the same time, Scripture's full of commands not to be angry. As you leaf through the Proverbs, you're going to find command after command not to be angry, not to be quick to angry, not to associate with people who become angry. Jesus himself, the same guy who turned over the tables in the temple, tells us back in his most famous sermon in Matthew 5 that to be angry, the kind of angry that, that wishes to curse a brother or sister, in God's eyes is tantamount to murder, and it's worthy of the fires of hell. And so how are we going to know in our own life when our anger is crossing that line from godlike to sinful. Well, we're going to consider this from a number of different angles, but the first one is where we've already started. We're going to look back at Psalm 103 and ask ourselves some questions out of that. We've already seen several things about God. He doesn't get angry quickly. He doesn't stay angry too long. And, and he never becomes too angry. In fact, his anger is never an appropriate response. He always gets less angry than our sins deserve. And so out of that, I want to give you three questions to ask yourself as you begin to evaluate your anger, as you're thinking about your anger in the light of Scripture. Number one, ask yourself, do I become angry too fast? When you begin to recount to someone about an incident where you got angry, do you find yourself having to use words like blew up or exploded or burst out? I see some shaking heads. If that is the case, then your anger is not reflecting that anger of God. God is slow to anger. Number two, you can ask yourself, do I get too angry? How often is our anger 
not a proportionate response to what was done to us. As a father of young children, I, I, I can speak to that. How often, at the end of the day, my anger when I respond to my children is, is it's not really godly. It's, it's because I'm mad about something else that happened earlier in the day or I'm just tired. Or number three, am I staying angry too long? How long do you, do you spend that story in your head? How long do you spend thinking about what you wish you would have said? It can be days later where you come up with what you really wanted to say. And so we need to ask ourselves... Are we staying angry too long? One of the exercises that I did this week preparing for this sermon that was suggested to me by a resource was to carry a piece of paper and a pen in my pocket all week long and to jot down every instance of anger that came about in my life. Not to, not to reflect on it at the time, just write down why I got angry. Um, and, and one of the things, honestly, that happened, I forgot Buddy Bell's number one rule to preaching. Well, the number one rule is preach shorter than he does. The number two rule is to always expect temptation. If you are preaching about a topic, you should expect the enemy to tempt you with that topic. And my goodness, I found that myself this week. I found myself angry. But then after you've written down your, written down your incidents of anger, sleep on it a couple nights, come back and consider those incidents of anger and ask yourself those three questions. Did I get angry too fast? Did I get too angry? Did I stay angry too long? One of the things that I learned is that much of my anger, which in the moment I thought was justified, really wasn't very Christ-like. Because at its root, anger as a sin, as almost all the deadly sins are, is really about selfishness. A wrathful person gets angry not because he sees hurt in a fallen world. A wrathful person gets angry because he ultimately didn't get what he wanted. Wrath whispers in our ear, things ought to go your way. The Holy Spirit responds, but in a quiet voice that we have to listen carefully for, the Holy Spirit responds, Thy will be done. Those are two very different voices saying two different things. All right, well, so far, I've given you some descriptions of basically what not to do, which is not always the most useful things when it comes to to, to beginning to discern how we ought to walk. And so let's try this on for size. You should be angry about the things that make God angry in the ways that he gets angry. I'll say that again. You should be angry about the things that make God angry in the ways that he gets angry. Both the why and the how matter. Not only does it matter what you get angry about, but how you express that anger matters very much in our efforts to be Christ-like. When you are able to, in the cool of the moment, to begin to reflect back on that anger, ask yourself, what was the target of your anger and how did you express it? And you begin to discern, was that God-like anger or not? Now, there are some people among us who get this. There are those who understand this. Much good has been done by good people who got angry about the injustices that they saw in the world. They knew that what they were seeing was not right, and they finally got righteously angry enough about it to do something about it. That said, if it's going to be anger like God's, it must ultimately always be rooted in love. God's anger always has justice as its object and love at its root. One of the people to whom I spoke this week in preparing for this sermon is Salema Thongade. She's one of the daughters of this family. I think, I think we can probably claim her. And she's someone who's upset by injustice. And she's chosen to use her considerable professional skills to wage war against it, to thunder against systemic evil in society when she sees it. But one of the lessons that she says she's learned early in her career as a lawyer is that anger can be a great catalyst. It can get you, it can get you out of your seat. It can get you moving. But any movement that's ever going to be sustained over any length of time 
must ultimately be rooted in love. Anything else will eventually lead to burnout. We act in love. Dr. King wrote that returning violence for violence only multiplies violence. Hate never drives out hate. Only love can do that. And I believe that if we go back and we more closely examine these moments in Scripture where we see God getting angry and where we see the Christ getting angry, we're going to discover that love was actually the motivating factor behind that anger. Let's reconsider those two stories that we referenced about Jesus. We'll go back to Mark 3. Jesus is in a place of worship with religious leaders. And he wants to heal somebody, but the religious leaders of the day are so slavishly devoted to their legalistic interpretation of Scripture that they have managed to completely ignore God's original intent behind the heart of his laws. And Jesus gets angry, I believe, because he wants that man healed. He wants to see that withered hand made whole. But I also think Jesus gets angry because he loves the Pharisees and the Herodians who are standing right there. He loves them too. And he sees their hard hearts. And he's saddened by it. Jesus loves, therefore he gets angry. Or what about that incident in the temple? I think this is really interesting. There's a man named David Platt, who's a great thinker and speaker about missions. And he points out that particularly in Mark's gospel, Jesus says that he's angry because God's temple is intended to be a house of prayer for the nations. But these merchants had set up shop smack in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the way that God accomplished his mission prior to the coming of the Christ was that he chose the Israelites from among all the nations. He bestowed blessing upon them and all nations would be drawn to them and thus to him. That's how his mission was going to be accomplished. And that court of the Gentiles was where those God-fearers, the ones who wanted to worship Yahweh, could come and they could worship him in the temple. And when Jesus walked into the temple, what he found was that the one place set aside for the nations to worship had been taken over by Jews who wanted to take advantage of Jews. And so, yes, I do think Jesus was bothered that people were getting cheated in the temple, and that's why we can't sell Girl Scout cookies in the lobby of churches. But really, aren't thin mints of God? I mean, <laughs> I digress. I, I believe that he was also at least, if not more, bothered by the fact that this was prohibiting his children from other nations having a place to worship. He loves the nations, and therefore Jesus had to turn over the tables and the chairs. That's what godly anger looks like. All right, a last word needs to be said about godly anger before we move on. God expects us to be angry about the things he's angry about and to respond as he would, which is to say in love. But one thing that he does not give to us and one thing that he in fact takes from us is the burden of vengeance. He takes that away from us. In this world full of evil and injustice, God ultimately promises that he's going to be just and that he's going to take care of making things right. He tells us in both the Old Testament and in the New that it's not our job to avenge wrongs. That's his job. And God always does what God says he's going to do. All right, well, as we, as we move forward in our time together, I want to, to begin to consider the tools that God has given us to combat anger. And so to do that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this is a letter written by a Christian guy to some Christians in a city called Ephesus. We're going to begin in chapter 4, and we're going to spill over into the first few verses of chapter 5. So hear these words. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor... For we are members one of another. I love the way that he puts that. We're not, we're not just members of a church. We are members of each other. Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as his beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul clarifies for us that Christians are, in fact, expected to be angry. It's part of how God made us. However, he did not make us to sin in our anger. We weren't created for that. We were created for more than that. We're not created to allow our anger to be inside of us and to fester and to destroy us from the inside. Now, I don't necessarily think that Paul's giving us a legalistic command here to clear up every misunderstanding that we ever have before we turn in at night. But I do think that Paul is making it very clear that God expects that we will deal with those things that make us angry and that might lead us to sin. If we do not, our anger becomes bitterness. And we wind up destroying ourselves, eaten alive from the inside by hanging on too tightly to our anger. And this leads us straight into the last major point that I want to make today about anger. Our main weapon as believers against anger is forgiveness. That's why Paul wraps up his discussion about anger by commanding us to forgive as Christ has forgiven us and to imitate God. I want you to listen closely, though. We are not told only to forgive the easy things. We are simply told to forgive. If we want to grow in Christ's likeness, then we must be people who forgive as Christ forgave us. This means forgiving even the hard stuff. To forgive when wrong, when legitimately wrong, is the kind of world, upside-down, countercultural thing that only happens by the children of God in Christ, motivated and empowered by His Holy Spirit. But when this happens, the world is changed. Homes are never the same again. I've seen this firsthand in my family, and with my bride's blessing, uh, I want to share this with you this morning as as a means of blessing as we talk about this. When my bride was a little girl, great evil was done to her by an older man. This was a man who had perpetrated evil acts on a lot of children. Fortunately, or blessedly by my way of reckoning, that man died when Melissa was still little. As a means of survival, she buried it, she forgot about it, she locked it up. And it stayed locked up until the memories of that evil came back to her as a college student. And I'll tell you, it just about broke her when those memories came back. But over the next years, she was blessed by godly counselors who helped her begin to grapple with what had been done to her and to understand how it echoed in her relationship with me, her husband, and what would eventually echo in her relationship with her children. So a few years ago, my bride Melissa was challenged by a godly woman, someone who understood Melissa's hurt, in, in, in a very special way, she was challenged by this woman to forgive this long-dead man. And so Melissa, she took some time. She stepped away from us, and she stepped back into that hurt. And remember, these are, this was evil. This was something that she had every right to stay angry for for the rest of her life. And she stepped back into it, and she did the hard work by the, by the power of God to forgive this man. And she needed to do this. She didn't need to do it for him. He's long dust. She needed to do it for herself and for her walk with her God, for her relationships with me and with her children, and for God to be able to redeem that hurt and make it a part of the woman that she is today and to even be able to bless you as a church family with that story today. 
Now, there are a couple of things, though, that I need to say about forgiveness like this. First of all, forgiveness doesn't mean that we excuse evil. Christ-like forgiveness does not excuse evil. But it does mean that we surrender our rights to be bitter. And we surrender our right to sin in our anger. And we surrender our right to avenge. And we trust God to do what he's promised to do. I'll tell you, there are a lot of parts of me, Melissa's husband, who takes delight in the fact that this man has gone home to face a, a just God. I delight in that fact. Second, forgiveness and releasing your anger does not always mean that reconciliation is pursued. My bride forgave a dead man. And even had he not been dead, this family would not be pursuing relationship with him. We, however, forgive in Christ. We forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us as a part of our walk with him. Because we need to do this in order to keep sin from getting a foothold on our life and from rotting us from the inside. And to be a testimony of what our God can do in us and through us. Now all of these things, all of these thoughts that have swirled around anger, they bring us to this moment. This is a special moment in our service where we have the chance to invite the community of God, to invite this family into our hurts and into our weaknesses and into our struggles with anger. Many of you knew from the moment I started speaking that the truth is you get angry too fast for too long and that you need God's help to overcome that because you've tried to beat it on your own and you just can't. I want to encourage you to confess that and let us pray with you that God will give you his peace and that he will teach you how to forgive. Many of you have finally been given eyes to see injustice. You see evil for what it is or maybe you're starting to see the fact that you've been a part of perpetuating evil. And you need to ask forgiveness or you need to ask God to get you up, to stand you up, to do something about this evil that you're seeing. Others of you have really good reasons to stay angry and to stay that way. You're like my bride was. Evil was done to you or someone you love and you've nursed your anger and you've nursed your hate for so long that it's become a part of how you think about yourself. Well, if that's the case, then today can be the day where you begin again claiming who you really are in Christ. You are a beloved child of a king who is strong enough to help you do the hard work of forgiving. Or finally, there's a group of you that I haven't really addressed much this morning. There's probably some of you that just need to tell your God, and you need to tell the family of God, that you're angry. You need to express the fact that you're mad. It's not fair that you got cancer. It's not fair that you're having to watch your spouse weaken. It's not fair that your friends keep pumping out babies and you keep miscarrying. You're angry about something that's not your fault. And you need to talk about it. Maybe you feel like you need to shout about it. Well, my friends, if there's any place where we ought to be able to express anger, it is here in the family of God. Bring it here and we will tell God together. I promise you, your God's big enough to handle your anger. So bring it here and we will tell him about it together. And if there's any place we ought to be able to talk about angry things, it's here in this family. There's something pretty great about this particular church family. If you're new to Landmark or maybe you've just forgotten... When we come forward, nobody comes down alone. We don't have to confess these things alone. We don't have to ask God to intervene in our anger alone. And so in a moment, as Wes leads us in song, I want to ask you to come down here to the front and let your brothers and sisters in Christ join you in turning your anger over to God and watching him make something beautiful out of your anger and out of you.